It's a debate that's been going on seemingly forever, and it's not which baseball team was the most dominant in history, because the answer to that is the 2005 Chicago White Sox. Rather, people around the St. Louis region have been debating for decades whether St. Louis and St. Louis County should somehow merge. One of the people who thinks that's a good idea is St. Louis Alderman Tom Oldenburg. The 16th Ward Democrat joins us to talk about that topic and many others. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens. Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to Politically Speaking, the only show about Missouri politics that approves of using an index card to determine whether you got a first down or not. (laughs) I am that host, Jason Rosenbaum, interim political editor for St. Louis Public Radio, and I still like NFL football, even though the Rams left. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Manis, who is cool on football ever since the Rams left. Understood. And joining us today from the beautiful and glorious 16th Ward of St. Louis, we have as our guest... 16th Ward Alderman Tom Oldenburg. This is going to be a 16th Ward love fest because two people are in this room live in the 16th Ward. Not me. You live in Webster Groves. Yes. So we'll have to make sure to have a Webster Groves uh, person on. Um, just introduce yourself uh, briefly. Tell us also what the boundaries of the 16th Ward are. Sure. So let's go the opposite of that. The boundaries of the 16th Ward are roughly... Uh, Chippewa to the north, the River De Pere to the west, uh, Mackland Avenue to the east, and uh, Wilmore Park to the south and Gravois. I mean, effectively, the 16th Ward services uh, a majority, 60% actually, of the neighborhood St. Louis Hills, Lindenwood Park, Southampton, and a sliver of Princeton Heights. Yeah, and the 16th Ward historically has been one of the long-standing, one of the few wards, sometimes the only ward in the city that had a significant Republican population. That is correct. And it still does. And it still does. It, that, it, I would argue it's the only ward in the city where you cannot ignore a Republican challenger in the general election. <laughs> Which is what happened last time. But also, they are a pretty important voting block um, for any aldermanic race because many of them take a Democratic ballot and cross over. Yeah, in the city of St. Louis, crossover voting is alive and well. Now, um, tell us a little bit about yourself so our listeners have an idea who you are. Sure, absolutely. Um, I've lived in the city about 15 years. Um, I did my graduate work at St. Louis University in urban planning and economic development. I gravitated more towards public finance in that that field of study. It's where I met my wife uh, about 12 years and three kids later. I'm the 16th Ward Alderman. Uh, my day job is with U.S. Bank Community Development Corporation. Okay. So we do a lot of tax credit financing and other public-private uh, partnership uh, financing and economic arrangements. I've worked there. I'm a vice president, and I've worked there for about, uh, gosh, it's coming up on 11 years. Um, 
Let's see. Uh, also, the 16th Ward involves a lot of neighborhood engagement. So I've, I've been on the Neighborhood Association uh, for the past six or seven years before I ran for alderman. And just uh, tell me in your we, – we had this conversation in the green room. How much did you spend – to win your race in April? So we raised about $80,000, which is pretty significant for an older man. Yes, it is. (laughs) Uh, And we spent about 65. Uh, I would say keep in mind that we were going against a very entrenched uh, name recognized uh, candidate. Former state representative Michelle Kratke, who had a pretty significant financial war chest of her own and also very high name recognition. Yes. And and a good political uh, and government resume. To be honest. So I just want to let our listeners know what happens when you spend $100,000 for an aldermanic race. It means people like Jason Rosenbaum and my wife, Lauren Todd, <clears throat> get a mailer every other day for three weeks. <laughs> and I just want to thank both candidates for making my uh, election season more robust. And your <laughs> and your recycling <laughs> container pretty full, at least at the end. So we're going to do something a little bit different that we haven't usually done on this show. Um, We are going to play Joe's feature on the city-county merger debate for our guests. We usually do that before our guest comes on, but we want to actually use it as a jumping off point to talk about that topic. Here is Joe's feature that she completed and aired last week. Blame it on Missouri State Senate President Pro Tem Ron Richard. The Joplin Republican told St. Louis Public Radio a few months ago that it's time the General Assembly paid attention to the St. Louis region's long-standing merger debate. The county has all these municipalities and all these little bitty fiefdoms. That someday, guys like me for rural Missouri is going to say enough's enough. You guys are out of money. Keep passing taxes. I think that's not in the best interest of Missourians. We're going to have to start merging. Richard explained last week that he's simply calling for state lawmakers to discuss the idea, and he's not endorsing any specific proposal. Richard emphasized that he certainly would want to hear from local officials and lawmakers. Still, the Municipal League of Metro St. Louis is alarmed. That's why it has drawn up the resolution that it hopes the County Council and the St. Louis Board of Aldermen will support. The resolution asserts that a possible statewide vote might be looming and that it is, quote, a scheme to circumvent merger opponents in the city and county. League Executive Director Pat Kelly says the fate of any merger idea should be left up to St. Louis and St. Louis County residents. It's kind of the foundation of our country that your vote should count in the areas that it's going to affect you. It was kind of the whole reason for the Boston Tea Party, right? But St. Louis Mayor Lida Cruson doesn't see the threat. She welcomes Richard's interest and says it shows state legislative leaders recognize the importance of the St. Louis region to the state. Cruson has long been a supporter of government consolidation. 57 police departments, 89 or 90 municipalities, and so we're spending a lot of money delivering services. She adds that the region's divisions do more than cost money. We fuss among ourselves about where should uh, this project go or that project go, whether or not a project goes in Clayton or downtown or Hazelwood or Wildwood. Cruson maintains that all that bickering is preventing area officials of focusing instead on how to best compete against other metropolitan areas, such as Louisville, Kansas City, or Indianapolis. That's long been the message of Better Together, a nonprofit group set up several years ago to promote regional consolidation. Its financial backers include wealthy financier Rex Singfield, a fan of some sort of merger. 
Better Together held public hearings this fall to gauge the public's interest. Nancy Rice, Better Together's executive director, says there has been a common thread. We have found a very strong appetite among a, a, a reasonably good-sized part of the population for change, particularly young people. But County Councilwoman Hazel Irby, a Democrat from University City, says that's not what she's hearing. Her district includes many African-American municipal officials who fear a merger could dilute black political power. I think that there should be more education around the whole thing. Uh, but right now, when I talk to my constituents, who's, when we say merge, they're not in favor of it. That doesn't surprise national urban policy expert David Rusk, who's the former mayor of Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was in town last week to offer advice to civic leaders. Rusk believes it's unrealistic to expect the St. Louis region's fragmented governmental structure to change. You really shouldn't concern yourself very much with trying to formally merge governments, but rather devise ways in which they can collaborate together. That's a message that many members of the region's municipal league might be able to get behind. Thank you, Joe, for that wonderful feature, which which <laughs> right. I also happened to edit. I, I wanted to play that for our guests because I, I know from talking with you during the campaign that the city-county unification merger issue is something that you've paid attention to for a while. So before we get to specific questions, I want you to just kind of explain your feelings on this topic, which is something that I think a lot of people in our ward have been paying attention to for a while. Certainly. Um, you know, I think that reunification, merger, consolidation, cooperation, whatever kind of, you know, um, cliche buzzword or catchphrase you want to put to it um, needs to happen. Uh, I think it's, and, and the reason I say that is because I, I tend to be a data-driven um, fiscal, you know, dollars and cents individual, and we can't keep going as a region, and when we say region, I think we're meaning in context here, St. Louis City and St. Louis County, we can't keep going on this unsustainable model, whereby our peer cities, um, you know, and peer regions uh, spend about eight or $900 less per capita in providing services uh, so those those fragmented areas and those lev those levels of bureaucracy do end up hurting constituents, residents, and families in the end. It's a very expensive model to continue to operate as we do. So then the question becomes, well, how the heck do you fix it? Where do you start unpeeling the onion? And the good thing is there's lots of smart people in our region, in our community, that are looking at this. I will say that this needs to happen, but I think it needs to happen incrementally. And we don't need to be impulsive with it. Uh, and I will just say this very, very candidly and bluntly. I think any kind of state general assembly plan um, or legislation is a bit impulsive. And there needs to really be um, a discussion amongst the stakeholders and those most impacted in the region. They should have the absolute most say and be at the table as opposed to um, outstate legislatures kind of deciding what's best for St. Louis City and St. Louis County. I mean, how do you sell it, especially in the county, um, even though they may be more receptive to some sharing of services than they used to be, let's say, even 20 years ago? Sure. The idea of even having the city re-enter the county um, seems to, I mean, they get Larry. I mean, I've, I was at county council meeting just last week 
where all the forum speakers, half of them were about merger stuff. Apparently they listened to St. Louis Public Radio. <laughs> and so they were all like beefing about it. I mean, the different people for different reasons. But bottom line is it kind of underscored how it's a hard sell. Yeah. And I think that's where we have to beat the drum where um, the pocketbook is that this will affect your taxes in the long run. You can't continue to um, increase property taxes uh, to to provide levels of service because when you increase property taxes or or other taxes on, on constituents or residents, they want more service for it. So the bottom line is we're not necessarily giving more service in the region, but we continue to raise taxes just to hold uh, what we're at. So I think the economic argument is really the way we have to sell it. Um, and that becomes difficult, I know, because, you know, the county's um, uh, a little divided in the way that its, pro- its taxes are split up, whether you're in an A class or a B municipality and how that works. So those are all very confusing, complex. And then the school districts, you know, special road districts, you start layering in uh, these other uh, districts or government units, and it gets very complicated. Now, I want to just ask, do you have a preference about how you would want to change the regional governance? There's, there's many choices. One, as Joe alluded to, the city could join the county as one of 90-ish municipalities. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also been an idea floated of some sort of Unigov-like structure where St. Louis City and St. Louis County kind of merge into one mega county or one mega city. Um, even in the Indianapolis example, though, there were uh, numerous cities that there's actually opted 15, out of that. There's about 15 little islands. With I'm from Indiana, but there's about 15 little islands of all the other cities within the city of Indianapolis. So I, 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 every time I ask the question about what you would prefer to a lot of politicians. They always say, "Well, I don't know. Let's let the process." Do you have a Do you have a I preference? Do. Though I think the first critical step would be for the city to to join the county okay. as the what would it be the ninety first municipality? Well, actually, because ones because basically it would be we would be the eighty ninth. Right now they have eighty nine. They have a couple and and another one is is expected to vote on Mackenzie. Yeah, which, right. which with I think a lot of 16th warders have probably driven through. Yeah, I mean that that's their they they want to dissolve. So if the city reentered it as it stands now, mm-hmm. uh, after April, um, they would be the 89th. Yeah, and, but, I, but and I say that Jason and, and 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 Joe because I think that's again going back to the theme of this should be incremental. I think that is a good first step to figuring out. Um, you know, uh, how the region wants to align itself next and how we get more efficient as a region. Mm-hmm. There are also, there's also the, the borough system, which I know has been discussed and floated that there would sort of, you know, it, that, that falls into place with the Unigov. But I think the borough system could be one potential uh, that doesn't, isn't a complete consolidation of power or wouldn't be perceived as a consolidation Explain of power. that a little bit to our listeners because that intrigues me. Yeah, so, I mean, effectively you would have... Um, uh, one layer of government, call it the county, uh, but you would you would be set up almost like New York City. Which, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Correct, correct, and where they have the different boroughs. Um, and there is sort of a, a, a borough, call it borough one president, which would be located somewhere in St. Louis County, borough two president, uh, borough three president, and then there would be uh, representative and members of, among each of those. And the municipalities could roll up to that, that kind of consolidated uh, power bench. Uh, and that would, I would think that would provide at least, you know, um, a more democratic process or could provide a more democratic process to be evaluated. I, I would just ask, though, if, if that occurred, would it be a situation where cities would actually have to buy into that system or would it be more that 
there might be like a county citywide vote and a decision's made for them. You know, I don't know. I think it could probably go either way. I think you'd want to err on the side of trying to get buy-in from the municipalities. The reason I ask that is I could see some cities never going along with that, which is why the question of force comes into play. Sure. Which which is not a popular option. <laughs> Certainly but politically might, speaking, it's politically not. speaking, it's not. But I mean, do I see Webster and Kirkwood and Creepcore and Chesterfield and, and, and Wildwood Florissant voluntarily ceasing to exist? No. No. Right. I don't. No, won't, right. Won't happen. But if they are all part of one borough. Right. And then there was there was their borough president uh, had a representation within the region, mm-hmm. uh, within the, the, the landmass that makes up the city and the county. I think that could be a little intriguing. Um, and and potentially um, it would be less fragmented than certainly the model we're working in now. Yeah, though it could be interesting in Webster and Kirkwood. They fight over their, their football team. And well, this is true. This so whether or not they'd agree to be in the same borough. But still, I mean, when you look at the forces, one of the things that I didn't get into because of time and space, I mean, it's been 141 years since the uh, 1876 divorce. And... And since that time, are there things, I mean, because you're in finance, so you may have a (coughs) sense of this. Um, Are there dynamics at play for the city? I mean, obviously, some of them are simple, but I want you to talk about that, that that propelled the city to do this in 1876, which ends up being a pretty bad decision, um, maybe worse than not moving the airport to Columbia, Illinois. And then... um, and then the way things are now, I mean, are because when people are looking ahead, sometimes they make mistakes. And I think in 1876, they had a vision for the future that obviously didn't didn't play out. I'm just interested in kind of your thoughts and what you're hearing among board members about if you did certain things, how would the future play out? Right. And that, so that's a good question. And I think what you'll see from the city, and certainly I'll be an advocate of this, is um, we have to prove and sell our case uh, for regionalism. And I think uh, we've taken steps to do that. I think uh, the fact that the Board of Aldermen voted to consolidate itself, cut the board in half, um, is one step to say we're kind of ready to, you know, quote unquote, get our house in order and be ready to marry up. Um, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a vision that looks forward. Uh, that says, you know, we need to be a leaner, more efficient government. Uh, and, you know, nowadays everyone wants to make sure their dollars go farther than they should. And I think that's one important step. The other thing I think worth noting is um, we get this right. And I think we've seen this play out in certain aspects. Um, MSD, for example, is a regional cog in the wheel of, of the St. Louis City and St. Louis County. Uh, Metrolink is another by state for Pete's sake, not just by county and, and by the city, but it's a by state co- cooperation and collaboration that works. Uh, the MSD, or not the MSD, I'm sorry, the Museum uh, Zoo District, right? Again, that's a county and city partnership that works. So uh, the economic partnership that also sits in, in Clayton right now, uh, which basically says uh, we're not going to fight over economic development opportunities in the city or in the county. The partnership is going to work on trying to bring net new jobs and net new investment, whether it's in the city or in the county, it's going to be good for the region. So I think those are important players to note in this, that this can work. And if you go back to when those started, I think you see uh, the future um, of cooperation 
uh, efficiency playing out, uh, certainly with those partnerships. I'm going to play a clip from Will Ross, who is part of a three-person panel set up by Better Together to come up with a formal merger plan. And the question that I asked him was, as and he's an African-American official who works at, I believe, Washington University. One of the biggest sources of criticism of any idea has been this fear that merging the city and the county in an incorrect way could hurt black political power, which was alluded to in Joe's story. This is kind of a long clip, but I wanted to make sure that this was in context, and then we'll jump off of that clip right afterward. Well, again, we also have to recognize that there is a reality in, 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 in that opinion, uh, and that, that, that's, that opinion is based a lot of his, history in St. Louis when the African-American voice has been diluted intentionally uh, through zoning policies, through restrictive covenants, uh, through uh, housing uh, agreements, uh, redlining gone awry. I mean, th that history is there, and we, we have to recognize that also. And I truly would get it as an African-American who's been in the city for 30, almost 37 years. I know that history well, and I understand why, as an African-American and as part of this community, I would have some 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 skepticism about this, about our our voting power, our rights being somewhat diluted. I can get that. Again, the key then is to is to structure a governance which truly is inclusive, a governance strategy which 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 is based on this, this sense of egalitarianism uh, uh, that 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 we can we can provide opportunities, resources, affordable housing. Uh, um, uh, communities that have uh, well-functioning, well uh, uh, well-functioning you know, well schools. Um, we we can uh, jobs, which which are clearly uh, important. As we talked about creating empowerment zones in the past, and those empowerment zones have not translated into sustainable jobs. We can create a governance structure which includes the voices, the phenomenally uh, sophisticated and effective leadership in our African-American community. Without that, if we don't have that inclusive governance, then, then yes, the African-American community has a legitimate right to be skeptical of this process. So here's the reason I'm bringing this up. I think that in a scenario when the city joins the county as a municipality, I think black political power could be preserved in a number of ways. People would still elect the mayor of St. Louis, and the city is basically 50-50. Mm -hmm. So an African-American clearly has a chance to, to win the mayorship here. And even in a county-wide race for county executive, the African-American population would go up under that circumstance because you're adding the city of St. Louis and more African-American voters. Now, under a Unigov situation where both the city and the county elect one leader, mm -hmm. I think that there's a real strong possibility that an African-American political figure would have a very difficult <clears throat> time of winning that because I think the combined populations would be, what, 65-35, 60-40? Yeah, something like that. And you have situations like in Indianapolis, for example, where there's a significant African-American population, but I don't believe under a UNIGOV system an African-American has they ever have, won They have that. never had an African-American mayor, unless I'm wrong. I'm almost positive Indianapolis has not. So I want to just know based off the clip from Dr. Ross there, um, how much consideration for a white politician like yourself do you take into this? Because it might seem like an odd question, but I think that 
I think that it's probably the most important question, especially after Ferguson and especially after Jason Stockley. No, I would concur. I, I think there needs to be a discussion where um, uh, the African-American community doesn't feel as if their representation is being diluted or that there's a larger power grab. Now, I would welcome ideas and policies from from the African-American community on on you know, solutions to that during this process. I will tell you, though, just from it, and this is going to sound maybe just incredibly academic, uh, but um, having a powerful executive, right, um, or a strong mayoral system, if you will, um, uh, tends to get results and tends to really move a community or move a city, uh, certainly in the ways of economic development and in providing services to citizens. It's much more efficient uh, than a decentralized uh, approach to, to, to government and decision making. Uh, so that's, you know, I, I struggle um, with with that balance, uh, but we need to be very respectful of it. So that's why I think, you know, to your point, Jason, I think we can uh, preserve uh, policies. Uh, there can be structures in place with this discussion uh, that, that make sure this doesn't come off as a power grab or that, that African-American or black power is somehow diluted in the process. So this will be a topic we'll be looking at probably until we're all dead because it's, <laughs> it, it may not be resolved then. Yeah, it may take another 140 <clears throat> years. <laughs> but I do yeah. want to move on to other topics because sure. I know that you have had a busy few months at the Board of Aldermen. You mentioned at the outset that you're kind of within the economic and development and, and tax incentive uh, realm for your professional job. How has that kind of bled into your job as alderman? Because I think you've actually been working on examining the city's incentives mm-hmm. and, and, and restructuring them. I, I'd like you to kind of delve into that. Certainly. Um, well, you know, I think as, as humans and professionals, we always gravitate to where our interests lie. Uh, so um, when I'm in my public life, I tend to focus more on um, the city's budget, fiscal discipline, uh, but more importantly, economic development, economic development strategies, uh, and the economic development incentives we're using, primarily TIF tax abatement, um, are the most common features or tools that, that a city will use. Um, I was lucky enough to get selected on the HUDS committee, the Housing Urban Development and Probably Zone one committee. of the most important committees in the entire Board of Aldermen. Yes. Would you say so, Joe? Yes. Certainly the busiest, uh, I would argue, absolutely. Uh, also the Neighborhood Development Committee, which handles a lot of the residential tax abatement projects. So between those two projects, also a very busy committee, between those two projects, or, um, excuse me, between those two committees, uh, there's a lot of work to examine uh, in how we're using our incentives. You know, and the city did a did a strategic plan or study of its incentives a few years back to kind of say, are they working? What's what are some solutions to get you know more bang for our buck? Let's just not you know throw away tax revenue. Uh, and I would say the underlying theme in that study was that. Um, it's too much of a political process, meaning that the aldermen have way too much input in the incentive, the economic development incentive process. Um, and I think that, you know, to, to Chairman Joe Rohde's credit, I think he's taken steps from that study to uh, whip SLDC into shape uh, in the sense that let's hire a financial analyst. Let's be looking at this from a return on investment to the city as well as uh, helping an impactful project, um, you know, with its gap financing where, where a gap may occur. Uh, so at his urging, SLDC hired a financial analyst whereby, 
they are examining each project on a case-by-case basis. That's that's over a million dollars, right? We have to have a scale here. Yeah, and I think our listeners should understand SLDC stands for the St. Louis Development Adve- Corporation. Development Corporation. Go ahead. Yes, absolutely. So they are professional economic development practitioners, an arm of, of the city uh, that looks to recruit, retain businesses, et cetera. Um, and they are professional, so that's why I think it, it made sense for um, Chairman Rohde to say, you know, you should have you should house a financial analyst that that looks at not just citywide our economic development incentives, but on a project by project basis, are they delivering an ROI to the city and a return on investment to citizens and constituents? And through that process, uh, we adopted um, uh, Resolution 33 uh, out of the HUD's committee and was passed by the Board of Aldermen, which really set interim guidelines for SLDC to administer when they're evaluating projects over a certain dollar amount. Uh, so for example, in, in Resolution 33, some, some of those guidelines are that each project will go through a comprehensive review by economic development professionals at St. Louis Development Corporation around architecture, urban design, uh, more importantly though, you know, the financial characteristics of that. Let's evaluate a developer or a real estate professional or an operating business's pro forma how are they projecting? Are those assumptions reasonable? And then what you get there is you really get to trim the fat down to say this is exactly the precise amount of incentive um, that they need. Here's the gap in their budget. And that way we're, we're not just saying, oh, well, gosh, it's better than what's there now, 10 years full tax abatement or a 23-year TIF of $10 million. This is sort of putting, a, in my mind, a practical, pragmatic approach with parameters to say, um, we're only going to give projects and folks sort of the precise amount they need. And the way to do that is let's do the arithmetic. So this really allows us to kind of crunch some numbers. Where I see it going, and this is something that the chairman has tasked me with on the HUDS committee, Chairman Rohde, um, is to let's identify other performance measures uh, associated with the use of our incentives. So not just what's the economic return to the city, right? When you're looking at that year is, okay, in the out years, how are, how are property taxes how are sales taxes and maybe earnings or payroll taxes being affected next to our use of incentives? But what are some other metrics we need to look at? Population. How has the population changed over time where we tend to concentrate our incentives? Or has median household income grown? Um, you know, um, what about the school systems? Let's layer that in. So what, what other barometers should we be identifying uh, when we want to evaluate the success of our incentives. And the hope, so sort of the hope, I'm being a little long-winded here, but the hope is with this project of identifying the performance measures and, and putting them you know, in a trend line next to our incentive use, the hope is we can begin to craft a business or an economic development plan for the city that kind of says, you know, oh, great, by industry type, we're seeing a lot of success around eds and meds, right? Education, uh, higher learning institutions, as well as uh, healthcare research institutions. We're seeing a lot of um, traction along our use of incentives with that industry. But then also it can be locust driven. Where should we be driving incentives, right? Um, the Central Corridor sort of has, a, has had a plethora of incentives over the years. What's interesting is the Southwest side has not had a lot of incentives. I do believe our, your predecessor, Donna Berenger, told me there were very few instances where she requested commercial tax incentives. I think there were probably select instances. And I can certainly say that there have not been tax abatements on residences in, in St. Louis Hills. That is accurate. So, that is accurate. Yeah, I think one thing, I mean, I don't want to bore people too much with the history <coughs> of this, but I, I'm a firm believer if you don't 
learn from history. You're destined to. Okay, because what happened in the 1960s, way before Jason was alive, was when um, A.J. Cervantes was mayor, and all of a sudden the city's population was sort of collapsing mm-hmm. for various reasons, some racial, uh, but it doesn't matter why. It matters what the result was. Mm-hmm. So they he started tossing, and with, with the approval of the Board of Aldermen, a ton of incentives, uh, you know, tax abatement, all this stuff. So by the time I showed up and some other reporters, like in the late 70s, there was already talk about what was working or what was not working because the city was saddled with huge uh, tax abatements on a number of downtown buildings at the time. And this is when the city had a lot of Fortune 500 uh, Mm -hmm. headquarters here. And so in the late 70s, and then they thought things were turning around, a lot of uh, historic economic development going on. Then the federal tax cut package came in 1986, and I was in the Washington Bureau at the time for the Post-Dispatch and helped cover that. It really decimated development um, here in the city as far as older buildings or anything for probably about 10 years before the state stepped in and some other stuff. And so my, my question is, now, when you're looking at this, some of those old tax abatements are long gone. I mean, there are some new ones that were put in place in the 1990s. But still, I mean, the, the climate and, of course, the population is less than half of what it was in the 1960s. So I'm just, are there things that, um, is there a discussion about, okay, that worked in the 1960s or 70s. We should try that. That didn't work. So God forbid we shouldn't do that. Is there any sort of discussion around that or looking about what's worked and what didn't? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where we're trying to to reach out to community stakeholders to say what what performance metrics do you do you care about? For example, um, forward through Ferguson, they had a lot of calls to action in there, um, right? And I think a lot of those calls to action are based on um, historic policy that failed. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's around you know policing, whether it's around um, you know uh, the municipalities or our um, folks trying to just drive tax revenue, uh, so it's what are your calls to action, right? And and how do how do we as a city appropriately use incentives uh, to achieve that call to action or that performance metric? Uh, for example, we know right we know that life expectancy in certain in certain zip codes or neighborhoods in this city is worse than it is in others, right? So that disparity exists. And it's, so what are the calls to action around that, to, that, that those stakeholders, like really smart people in, in, in sociology, uh, in academia, as well as practical folks with boots on the ground, what are the calls to action to, um, to bridge that disparity? And then how can we use our economic development incentives to aid in that call to action? So. I would agree that studying history needs to absolutely be part of the process. We can't just keep, you know, getting on the same merry-go-round. And I would say I, this process is going to take a little while, but I think it's different in the sense that we never had a comprehensive plan in this town um, that was truly adopted. And I think having an economic strategy that exists for all 79 neighborhoods um, and speaks to how we use our economic development incentives through the city's small little tax code, right? The, the mini uh, way that we are able to manipulate economic development um, should be should be prioritized, and we need to start that conversation. Now, I know that this part of the reason we're talking about this is there's a very vocal group of people in the city who 
have been very critical of tax yeah. incentives. They say that it drains money from, <clears throat> you know, city services, the schools, and that <clears throat> there needs to be a, a pretty drastic either rethinking or reduction of them. The question that I always pose to them, though, is, as we've talked about in the first part of the show, we're not operating in a vacuum here. Right. Mm-hmm. There are going to be cities in St. Louis County that would be more than happy to use incentives to get big companies to locate there. And Kansas uh, City, Kansas City, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, St. Charles County as well. I think we I think people in St. Louis and St. Louis County need to stop thinking of St. Charles County as this backwater Correct. You know, place that. They, they disparage all the time. It's the fastest the growing county in the, the region. it's the fastest growing county in the region. In the state. In the state. And they're already attracting a lot of manufacturing and other jobs. So how do we have this discussion with not without thinking how do, what do we do now affects businesses going elsewhere in the region? Because, yeah. you know, we, St. Charles is not yeah. going to merge with St. Louis City and St. Louis County. And, you know, the, the discussion we just had is going to be years in the making. How do we take that into account? Right. So that's why I think, well couple of things there. One is it is a regional approach. So we need to drive more resources to the economic partnership, uh, an organization that I, that I brought up earlier in this segment uh, that says, hey, where, you know, both the city and the county, wherever economic development can happen, it's good. It's good on a regional basis and it drives jobs. Uh, but I think, you know, more importantly, I think we need to have a conversation about um, just uniformity and um, predictability. At the end of the day, um, a real estate professional or a business can locate themselves in Clayton and Clayton can give them all the incentives that, that they desire. Now, is that right based on the median household of income that that's in Clayton and will a business thrive and succeed in Clayton? In most cases, probably yes. I think it comes back to us saying, yeah, we understand there's this kind of anarchic system of states and we're all competing for tax dollars. Um, but if we could there's, there's more than always just an economic incentive package here. And that's what I think our economic development plan needs to craft, to say, yeah, we need to be competitive on incentives, but we need to make sure we're giving the absolute amount necessary or that's needed. But more importantly, let's drive, now this is anecdotal, but let's drive the area of our economic development platform where we're seeing success around entrepreneurship, around the millennials and startup businesses, Cortex, T-Rex. These are folks that if you ask them, they don't care about tax abatement. They don't care about an economic development package. They want government just to do the simple things and do it well, which is provide me safety, provide me public transportation, provide me diversity, diversity in all things, diversity in architecture, diversity in culture, um, and create and, and have me located next to you know research one institutions. Um, and that fabric, in my mind, is what I think we need to be focusing a lot of our energy on. But we have to continue to do, you know, um, the certain baseline economic development incentives to stay competitive. But if we grab that strength that we're seeing, sort of that emergence, which is this entrepreneurial spirit um, and startup businesses in St. Louis, I think I think that's the ticket to help us around the region and around and around. When I say region, I'm thinking Midwest here, Kansas City, Nashville. Our competitors in that realm. Yeah, you mentioned diversity, um, and I, I actually this is a jumping off point that I, I wanted to, to bring up. You know, St. Louis is still a very segregated city, mm-hmm. and not only segregated racially but seg- segregated economically. You have places like Southwest St. Louis, which I think are thriving in multiple ways, but they're still fairly homogenous racially. You have places like the Central Quarter, which are more diverse, and I think that they're also um, 
you know, doing pretty well. And then you look at the predominantly African-American parts of our city and you just see them struggling with crime, disinvestment. You don't see a lot of businesses coming up there. How is that going to be taken into consideration? Is there anything aldermen can do to change that reality? Because, I mean, you could probably stand on a street corner in St. Louis Hills and say, I want more African-American families to live there, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen if they can't afford houses there uh, or vice versa. So I, I know that might be kind of out of the, the, the power of an alderman, but I'm interested as somebody who looks at development a lot how that structural reality affects this entire conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, it, there, there's, a, there's market realities to, to the answer um, uh, of your question, meaning that uh, there's been decades of disinvestment in certain areas of St. Louis. Yes, and you, I mean, this yeah. was an issue in the late 70s there when I covered the Board of Aldermen. Mm-hmm. So there's no silver bullet, uh, and I think you realize that, Jason, but I think it's worth saying out loud, there's no silver bullet that fixes this overnight, and what can the Board of Aldermen do? I think, um, you know, a fallback position should be we have to start thinking holistically or more citywide on our approaches to policy. So one of the first things I did after I got elected is to try to build relationships with Northside Aldermen because I know that there, this disparity exists. I know that there's been decades of disinvestment um, in certain Northside neighborhoods. So um, I took a tour of Jeffrey Boyd's ward. Uh, I'm scheduled to, to also do a similar thing uh, with Pam Boyd in the 27th ward. Uh, I've reached out to uh, Mr. Bosley, Alderman Bosley, and Alderman Muhammad to, to take a look at their wards because I think it's important that we see what happens and what, what some of those aldermen are working with. I mean, some of those wards I just mentioned and those aldermen, I mean, they have thousands of upon thousands of LRA properties or vacant parcels that exist up there. To be honest with you, um, I think that should be a problem for anyone who lives in Southwest City or lives in the Central Corridor or lives downtown because we should care that there's that much disinvestment in our city. And the success of those wards also means the success of the Southwest portion of the city or downtown. So I come back to, and I don't want to be a broken record, but I come back to an economic development plan that has to address that. And we've been talking about that for years. Um, and that's something that I think we need to give more focus and resources to. But it's hard, right, because there's folks who want to talk about an audit that might potentially cost money. So do we do that over an economic development plan? Um, you know, well, what's your take on that? Yeah, yeah, what's your thought about that? Great. And what's your thought about an audit? Certainly. So I think um, government can always be more efficient. I think audits can, I think the, the key word here is can help in aiding um, a solution around more government efficiency or, or waste and spending, uh, but it depends on the scope of the audit, right? Um, can we do it? My question is, and this is an evolving discussion, but can we do it uh, without a cost, um, a, a burdensome cost to the city? Um, can we use the tools that already exist, right? The comptroller's technically sort of our chief and auditor uh, of the city. Um, can we take the past audit, which um, was a citywide audit done in 2008, between 2008 and 2010, I think, by yeah. then state auditor Susan Monty. Um, and I read through that entire audit. Um, and at the end of the day, though, it's important to qualify an audit's a management tool. It's just going to say, oh, here are some practices or policies you might want to implement right. because here are the inconsistencies we saw. It's not binding. It's not law. You present that audit to the department head or to the county office to, to which um, uh, the findings were, were looked at, and they can sort of say, eh, okay. There's no teeth that really says you have to implement those policies or those findings within the audit. So I worry about wasting an incredible amount of money and time auditing various parts of the city 
to come to what conclusion? I think if the scope of the audit is defined in a very narrow way of what we want to achieve with it, and if it is, look, a revenue audit or if it is a fixed asset audit, what type of review do we want to do? Um, but what I will say, getting back a minute to the audit that was previously done that looked at a two-year window between 08 and 2010, basically the findings were there are um, a lot of county offices, which are creatures of state law um, and not under not subject to home rule vis-a-vis -vis the city's authority, and uh, they need to cooperate more because the accounting system in the comptroller's office is different from the accounting system in the then assessor's office and is different from the license office. Um, so the bottom line, the bottom line from that audit was there needs to be more cooperation among those county offices. I can't tell you today whether that's happened since 2010. Mm -hmm. If those, any of those findings were implemented, I know the assessor's office has, has taken great lengths to update a lot of its models to be more efficient. Uh, I'm not sure about the comptroller's audits or, um, you know, uh, recent accounting practices. So that's where, let's see if anything got implemented from that audit first. Because what is being proposed now, I think both in the petition drive and possibly the Board of Aldermen, is having Nicole Galloway come in, mm -hmm. which sounds like, oh, you know. This is state auditor. State auditor, right. which, which sounds on paper like, oh, that's a great solution. She has a lot of staff. But the thing is, it costs like a million to $2 million. Correct. It's not like she does it for and free. And could take two yeah, or three and years. And the city has to pay that. Yeah, it's not the, right. the state's not going to cover the bill. And um, I mean, it's it's not out of the question that she could start the audit and another person ends up finishing it, depending on what happens in her reelection bid. Yeah. So good point. At this point, do you think that that is the direction? Do you, you think your colleagues are comfortable with or do you think the cost is the big hang up? Here? I think the for me, it's going to be the cost is the big hang, hang up. Can we be can we use the existing resources we have? Um, in, in the comptroller's office, can we look at the audits that are done on a routine basis, either by the comptroller um, or others, um, to, to try to save money as opposed to what is going to be a lengthy and expensive process? To me, it's going to be the cost. I will state emphatically here that I think audits are, um, if, if the scope is defined right, a great tool for government. I mean, government should always be operating as efficient and, and as lean as possible, and audits help us uncover that. Um, my my hang-up is the cost, and then if we're going to spend the darn money, let's make sure we have some teeth to implement what those findings are. So that's going to be determining whether you vote yes or no or not. The Absolutely. cost the scope, and whether there's teeth. You got it. It'll be an issue that we'll be following along with all these other issues. Thank you so much for coming on our show. We look forward to having you on 60 more times because <laughs> I always give special preferential treatment to the 16th We didn't ward. even talk about a lot of 16th ward specifics, but maybe like, next time. Yeah, we can talk about how David Francis is one of the greatest St. Louis leaders ever, and the statue that is going to be built in his honor in Francis Park is well overdue. Now, that might sound like sarcasm to our listeners. Read about this guy. This guy was incredible. He was the only mayor to ever become governor. He later became governor to Russia and had a dramatic escape during World War I. And he wore a top hat all the time. So I hope that the statue includes a top hat. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Jay Rosenbaum is where you can follow me on Twitter. Joe? It's Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. How would we follow you on Twitter? Sure. It's Oldenburg, O-L-D-E-N-B-U-R-G-S-T-L. And make sure to subscribe to his newsletter if you're in the 16th Ward. It is an excellent newsletter. <laughs> Until next time, so long. <laughs>